Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Lit Matters podcast. For today's episode, we are going to dive headfirst into the rabbit hole of curiosity that is Lewis Carroll's masterpiece, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And we are joined today by Derek Fernando. He is an 11th grade English teacher at St. John Bosco. He is an English teacher at Orange Coast College. And he is also the host of the American Lit podcast. And Derek, you can be the Tweedledee to my Tweedledum. You can be the pig to my pepper. You can be the griffin to my mock turtle. Thank you so very much. Welcome to the show, Derek. Contrary wise, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh, this is so much fun. And you have chosen one of my favorite books today. And I am so excited to talk about Alice in Wonderland. It is, it's such a brilliant book. I've taught it a number of times. I've seen the actual manuscript. I love this book, even though I think sometimes I don't, half the time, I don't know what's going on. And that's what makes it so so genius. So before we start with Alice, let's begin with this. You're a fellow podcaster as well, too. So it, it, it sounds like we came up with ideas for our shows Lit Matters and American Lit at the same time. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your show? Uh, And I'm curious, I know you're such a great teacher. How is podcasting different from teaching? Um, Well, I'll take the first part first, right? So thinking about what uh, what brought me to podcasting, um, I looked at my students and their need, and one of their needs was additional instruction. Now, originally, when we went into kind of this remote learning environment, Uh, I would just record lectures and say, all right, here's part of your reading for tonight and check out this lecture and make sure that you use that to help inform our discussions for next class. Um, And I had a teaching partner that also teaches American Lit and our AP Lang class for our juniors. And he and I talk every day. And it was one of those things that just over time, we kept saying, man, we should really record these conversations. (laughs) Um, Our students would get such a, a great kind of boost out of our discussions about the text that we're teaching and how we want to teach them. And so one day after having the opportunity to kind of sit back because we're at home and not getting a whole lot of sleep, um, I just thought, why can't we record our conversations? And so I pitched it to my buddy and within the next couple of days, we were already scripting our first episode talking about the the final book we were going to be reading for that school year the the 2019-2020 school year which was uh, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, We basically broke it up into three separate sections kind of a what happened last time sort of a a setup for the chapters we were going to discuss in the podcast and then we turned it into a conversation about the themes we wanted the students to focus on. We looked at entropy Uh, empathy, which is a major theme in the text, and uh, this kind of ontological question inquiry that's happening about existence and what it means to exist. 
Um, and then finally kind of wrapping it up with what we expected in the writing we wanted to see. And so that naturally became this one, a supplement to the instruction in the classroom, but two, more importantly, it became this creative outlet that we both didn't know we needed, but we were using already. And it became something that we both felt needed to continue. So we have two other seasons of it, basically two other texts, and we're just going to keep going as until the wheels fall off. One of the cool things too, is you're introducing young high school students to the, to the art of the podcast that is so good for storytelling. I mean, there's everything out there. If you're a baseball fan, there's your baseball podcast. If you're a lover of true crime and detective, there it is. I, I must admit a shameful plug here. I just ran into a podcast recently on Tolkien. And I, I, I mean, that's the book that made me love reading. And I'm like, I'm listening to these guys. They're much smarter than I will ever be over Tolkien. And I'm stuck in it. I, I, every day I listen to that podcast. So that's fantastic. But I, I'm curious. So, so again, you came to this with one of your fellow teachers as well, too. How does it come across being different than teaching? So, you know, you're, you're, you're such a dynamic teacher in the classroom. How does the podcast uh, sort of aspects work of this? Well, you're very kind to call me dynamic. I appreciate that. But, um, you know, I think what we discovered when we first put together the podcast was, like I said earlier, we just were talking every day and we would constantly talk about how to improve the in-class discussions, how we would get students more involved. It became kind of this, what we always say, steel sharpening steel. We're just making each other better once we got back to the classroom. But there was all this kind of like stuff left on the cutting floor, cutting room floor, right? So it's like, well, what do we do with that stuff? That stuff can't just be there. We got to share that. And so it became kind of a, a, a way for us to take that what we thought was valuable information and valuable instruction um, and treat it almost like a, a what is it? The uh, inside the actor's studio, but instead it was in inside the, the instructor's studio. And it was two guys talking about a text that they both loved as well as kind of instructing on how to move in the direction of cultivating a message and producing or composing a, a work of nonfiction, creative nonfiction that the students could use at their leisure. So um, kind of like it was a best of both worlds. I got a chance to help my students and I got a chance during the pandemic, during the, the early throes of the pandemic to hang out with my buddy online. So it was kind of a, a double, double bonus for me. On a side note, I have heard so many people outside of the teaching profession really ridicule what we're doing as professionals during this 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 pandemic. And I, and I think this is a perfect example of how hard teachers have worked to, to to assist these students that are struggling in so many ways. And so, you know, kudos to you. And 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 I, I will say I've taught androids multiple times and i learned so much from your podcast that i'm like i'm stealing that next time so please so, by all so, means so, it's out there for everybody thank you so very much for that so, so derek the, the the goal of this podcast lit matters is to talk about books that matter and i, I always like to ask this question of all of my guests which is have you always been a reader? Like, how did you become a reader? How did you know that this was this integral part of, uh, of, of the very essence of who Derek Fernando is? So, so tell me about your right reading journey. Um, well, as promised, I'm going to get a little misty when I answer this question. <laughs> um, so my grandmother, um, God rest her soul, she, she was a Montessori teacher. And when she and my family moved here, 
in the early 70s, she started teaching and then she was able to open her own school. And then my aunt, her, her oldest, was able to open a second school. So when my grandmother was teaching at her Montessori, my aunt at the kind of the older kids side of the Montessori school, I was there. I was really young. I was one, two years old. That was like free babysitting for my parents. Um, but my grandma was always a reader. She was constantly reading to me when I was, I would stay with her basically every day. Um, she would read to me on the weekends when I go stay the night at her place. I mean, it was a constant sort of just always reading with grandma. And uh, now I, I hope that I get to be that same kind of person with, with my kids and my grandkids. And I hope that I'm instilling that same love, but just seeing the way that she would light up when she would read the stories she was reading or read the poetry she was reading, she'd write her own poetry and share it with me. I mean, it was one of those things that we shared together because once I got to high school and recognized the benefits, I mean, I didn't recognize it came from my grandma, but I recognized that I read up a whole lot. I had been writing a whole lot. And so when I got to high school, it became kind of second nature. All of my teachers commented on, wow, you're really ahead of X, Y, and Z. And I was like, all right, well, sure. But I like playing sports too. So it became <laughs> sort of this thing of, well, I'm good at this, but that's kind of natural. It feels natural. And then it wasn't until college where I realized, no, it was a foundation that my grandmother had instilled in me. And so reading the books that I read, moving all, like you mentioned, Tolkien, I read Tolkien in high school. I, I read all the books that we were asked to read in high school as well. I was a big kind of comic book nerd. I got into a bunch of different Marvel and DC storylines and story arcs. So seeing what the MCU is doing and the DC universe is doing now on film is great. And I constantly tell my kids, okay, but let's read this Infinity Gauntlet book together. It's really great. Um, so there was, there was that. And then once I got to college, I, I, my entire world got opened up and I saw all this entire new world of literature that I hadn't really known about and was exposed to. And some of it was familiar, like I said, with my grandmother or with high school stuff. But then I started realizing there's so much more history behind what I was reading in high school for Shakespeare and how Shakespeare, you know, kind of for his sonnets anyway, goes back to Petrarch and Petrarch goes further back. And so there's this like lineage that I was missing. And when I started reading in college, I going back to the Tolkien thing, I always go back to thinking about Gandalf when he's researching the ring and trying to figure out what happened. And he goes to the, the library and he's just sifting through these scrolls. And I tell people all the time, that's, I'm going to be that. When I'm 75, 80 years old, I'm going to be that. I'm going to long beard, long, long pipe, just sitting in a, a library. That's what I want. Um, and that's what I did in college. Uh, got into the master's program at LMU and was lucky enough to meet some amazing instructors, amazing peers that pushed me in different directions. For a second there, I thought I was going to be a medievalist because of one of the instructors we had. Um, and I, I really just um, locked into American literature and early American transcendentalism with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Henry David Thoreau, these were kind of like the formative, this, these are the guys I want to study. And, um, and then from that point forward, it became sort of, again, going back to this lineage question of everything's connected in some way. And if we talk about what um, Emerson and Thoreau were saying, you can hear the same nuggets of wisdom in what we're seeing in today's kind of thinkers and writers. And so that, that really interested me. And that's what's guided my, my story from, from grad school to now. And it's my hope, like I said, to engender that same kind of love. But I, I go, I'll always go back to my grandmother and yeah, how much she really meant to me in terms of getting me on this path. And both as a, as a writer, as a reader, 
and hopefully as an instructor, and if I can even come close to what she instilled in me, I think I did all right. I think you've already done all right. I'll say this. We're going to have to have, have multiple episodes because first we probably need to have a, a Tolkien conversation one of these days. And, you know, and, and our, our listeners do not know that we're not sitting here with pipes smoking, smoking, you know, Shire pipe weed. You never know. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And Gandalf's much older than 80, as we know, when you're right. a real fan. Right. Uh, and certainly we need to have a conversation about comic books one of these days. It's funny that you mentioned the Infinity Gauntlet. I was a huge comic book nerd as well, too. But unfortunately, the comic books I loved growing up, they turned into terrible films. So I was an X-Men guy. Dark Phoenix was the first book that probably ever made me cry, that saga, the Chris Claremont. And I have them still. They're sitting behind me right now. And boy, they have butchered that on film multiple times. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's very sorry. Maybe they'll try it again. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Well, so, so, so Derek, tonight we are talking about Lewis Carroll and Alice's Adventure in Wonderland. So let's start there. I think most people have a basic understanding of this story. So I say, can you give us a spoiler-free, you know, condensed least we need to know? But let's just drop the spoiler part. For the reader who's never read it or never ridden the Disneyland ride or, or watched the, the adaptation that was sort of there, can you give us just a quick nuts and bolts, just the basics, least you need to know about Alice's Adventure in Wonderland to start us off today? Um, well, the, the, the kids nowadays say the tell me this in a bad way. Give me a bad description of <laughs> something, right? So bad description is a girl falls asleep and has a really trippy dream and wakes up, right? There's the bad <laughs> description of Alice in Wonderland. Um, but the real description is it's a young lady who is driven by her curiosity. And that curiosity takes her into a world that she doesn't very well understand, uh, but she tries to. And she tries to multiple times and, and it constantly is shifting on her. And that shifting of the rules in the world that she inhabits is also kind of something that happens inside of her, that she feels herself kind of shifting um, quite literally at times and figuratively in others. And then by the end of the, the text, there is this sense of growth that we get out of the character of Alice. And that growth is tested time and time again by the end of the novel until finally um, in uh, the climactic sort of end of the the uh, courtroom scene with the the queen, she recognizes the power that she actually has, what she's learned about herself, what she's learned about how to interact with the, with others around her, and it's at that moment that the cards fall down on her when, in actuality, it's leaves, and she wakes up feeling as though she has gone through a an extremely big change, but in actuality, she's only fallen asleep here next to her sister who was reading her the histories of, of England at the time. So um, it's a great, great novel. I, I think every person at some point in their life needs to read it. And I would dare say needs to read it multiple times because, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but it definitely means something at different points of one's life. And I think that the fact that you can constantly take from it is what makes this such a masterpiece. And it's interesting. You could you could argue it is the quintessential work of children's fiction, 1865. But I love the way you describe that, which is you could argue it's one of the quintessential works of fiction that we as humans, because what you just described is that human journey that we all go through. I, that's that's wonderful, Derek. 
so 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 that's spoiler free. We took us to the end as well too. You're just a pack of cards. That that's okay, right? The, 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 our audiences they there's enough to surprise them with, with this plot. Um, yeah. Can you tell us? I, I know anytime you teach Alice in Wonderland, lots of people go straight to Lewis Carroll. Oh, you know he was he was eating mushrooms and he was completely an opium addict. He was a pedophile. There's a lot of that stuff that's going around. So I'm curious as a teacher, how do you address that? What do you, what do you think? I mean, you know, do we deal with anything about his life or as much of that just simply speculation because he wrote this really wonderful work that we're trying to decipher today. Um, I think that the biggest part of thinking about the text when thinking about Lewis Carroll is kind of that duality that happens in the text is a part of who he is too. Because Lewis Carroll isn't his given name. That's his pen name, right? And mm-hmm. Charles Dodson being his real name. There, it is this war inside of that individual, these two personas. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the, the man himself, sure, there are things that would be by today's standards be frowned upon or be seen as like a deviant behavior. But you have to remember writing at the time and looking at what was happening in the mid to late uh, 19th century in England, in Victorian England, innocence is a big part of the society and preserving innocence is what Lewis Carroll was really all about. So when you look at the way that his character is portrayed, when I say his character, I mean his actual, like his ethos, mm-hmm. um, he was a big fan of photography mm-hmm. and photography was kind of in vogue at the time, another art form taking shape. Um, he was a, a logician and a logic instructor. Um, and the, the subject, Alice Liddell, is in fact a, the daughter of the dean of the college that he works for. So when you think about all of those factors, it really makes it easier for us to see that it wasn't necessarily deviant so much as it was almost protective. Mm-hmm. And a, a buddy of mine and I talk about this a, a lot in thinking about how Lewis Carroll kind of is similar to um, in The Catcher in the Rye, looking at Holden Caulfield. Mm-hmm. Lewis Carroll, for all intents and purposes, is kind of this catcher in the right. He is trying his best to stop Alice mm-hmm. from growing up. Mm-hmm. And despite his best efforts, Lewis Carroll, the, the author, says, well, there's nothing you can really do. She has a mind of her own and she's going to use that. So I think that that's kind of the, the internal conflict that you see in the, in the persona of Charles Dodson and Lewis Carroll is Charles Dodson is trying to preserve the innocence, much like what we see in a lot of Victorian writers Whereas Lewis Carroll's like, but she has a life of her own and I have to write that life as accurately as possible. So I think that that's a big part of of, um, what I try to instill in my students anyway, is don't read it ahistorically. Don't look at the man ahistorically. You have to consider the historical ramifications of what's happening around him before you can pass judgment. I think he writes her a letter when she's about 18 and he calls her Alice Liddell that was. And, and going back to the idea of that lost sense of childhood as well, too. I mean, you know, there is this sense of, and, and we don't want to give away spoilers to the end, but he lets her return to that, right? He's not willing to pull her out of that world. Yeah. Um, Alice is such a great character. You know, she is this young girl who is, you know, the line, curiouser and curiouser, right? Um, talk to me a little bit about Alice because she is such a wonderful, wonderful character in this fantastical world that he creates. Well, I think one of the things that I love about Alice is also one of the things that would probably drive me crazy if I was around her on a regular basis. And that was the fact that she knows everything, right? And she will be very vocal about the fact that she knows everything. 
now when I say that drives me crazy, I mean, it drives me crazy from the perspective of when you think about a character that's as dynamic as Alice, because on the one hand, she's constantly kind of either interjecting or correcting or saying, this is how it's supposed to go. Or as, as comes out in when she's falling down the rabbit hole, when she kind of is talking poorly about one of her peers and saying like, I wouldn't want to be like her. I'm not going to be like that. But then once she she's actually faced with these existential type questions, we see what's really happening in there. We see the the kind of the veneer fall off and we see who Alice really is. And it's a child who's trying to figure out her way in the world. And I think everyone, any reader at any time in their life can recognize at the very least that she's a child trying to figure out a world. And that's a really scary prospect. And the only defense mechanism you can figure out is to say, oh, I already know that. Yeah, I know that. I, I know what to do. And that that's a way to kind of get people off your back. But as we recognize over the course of, the, of her development, she realizes she doesn't know everything. She doesn't know how big she needs to be. She doesn't know how old she needs to act. And she questions all the time. Mm-hmm. And I love that about Alice. But like I said, it can also be something that's grating because the fact that she's constantly asking questions or constantly pushing these other characters leaves us with this sort of like, Hey, all right, kid, take a, take a break, you know, pump the brakes a little bit. Um, But, you know, as a, as a parent, that's also like the biggest joy is seeing that curiosity on display. Having those questions constantly come up is so accurate to what a child needs to be in that innocence of truly wanting to know. And when the caterpillar asks her, who are you? And we all take it for granted, just like, oh, I'm Derek. But for for Alice, she truly asks herself, gosh, who am I? I I don't know. I've changed so much since this morning that I hardly know. I think that that's an amazing insight into not only the innocence of a child, but also to kind of our own sense of self and how we can think of ourselves. And sure, we may not necessarily run into that on a regular basis, this kind of existential questions. But if we sit and think with them for a minute, yeah, we return to that space of innocence, just much like how Lewis Carroll is forcing us to return with Alice. There's several things there. For, I'm trying to remember the, the young girl's name. Is it Myrtle? It's something like terrible that she compares herself multiple times to, oh, I hope I'm not Myrtle. <laughs> I, I, I think it's Mabel. Mabel or Mabel, Myrtle. It's yeah. Mabel. I knew it's Mabel. Mabel. It's Mabel. Mabel. Yeah. Um, but, but I think you're exactly right. I think we as parents, we as teachers, we look at children and we almost expect these sort of demarcation lines they've crossed over. And I, and I, I think it's it, it, when you point out this notion of she changes in size so often, right? Each of those back and forth, back and forth. There's no clear line where you've crossed over into adulthood. You've crossed over into maturity. It's these stops and starts as we understand and process you know, this, this larger complexity of life. And and I think you're right in this children's book air quotes. If if our readers could see it, you know, this, this concept of who are you, that's as fundamental as, you know, Hamlet to thine own self be true. It's really, it's a beautiful question. Well, that sort of leads me to my next question, which is this, there are so many great secondary characters in this, you know, we follow Alice's journey, but it's filled with so many beautifully lush, well-written mysteries and characters throughout there. Do you have a couple of favorites other than Alice that appear in the novel that you just can't wait to talk about with your students? You're going to make me pick my, my favorite children. All right. Got it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. Uh, all right. 
I'm going to give you a few. I'm going to start at the, I'm not going to number them. They're not going to be in any order. Um, so the Dodo, right. Thinking about the Dodo as, as one of my favorite characters, because I definitely am like the Dodo and many of my students will probably say I am like the Dodo. So when we get to that moment where the eaglet is kind of clowning on the Dodo saying, I don't know any of those words that you're saying. And I'm fairly certain you don't know any of those words. So can you speak in English? please? I can't tell you how often my students, when we teach this in class, uh, professor, I don't know what you just said. I'm fairly certain you don't know what you just said. Do you mind restating what you just said? So that's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I, I mentioned the caterpillar. Um, I love the caterpillar because of the question and, and the interaction he has with Alice. There are a lot of those characters that really resonate with me. There are other characters that kind of push Alice or like the Duchess, for example, uh, the Griffin and the, the Mock Turtle are those kinds of characters for Alice. But there are these guide characters that I, I really enjoy. So um, the Caterpillar, the Hatter is another one of those guides. Um, as much as the March Hare kind of seems like he's kind of a guide too. I like that they have kind of the back and forth between he and Alice. But I'm going to pick my favorite kid. My favorite kid is the Cheshire Cat um, for a few reasons, right? I think it's easy to love the Cheshire Cat just because of what, what the Cheshire Cat kind of gives you in the story. Um, but it's, it's the advice that he gives, right? It's the guidance that he gives. He is the true kind of guidepost for Alice in the middle of the story, quite literally in the middle of the story, and pushes her in these directions without telling her where to go. I think that's my favorite part. Right? Because if you look at all the other characters, they're telling her where to go. You can go here. You should go there. You go there. Come on this way. But with the Cheshire Cat, it's very open. Here are the options available to you. Here's what's at the end of each of those options. You need to figure out what you want to do for yourself. It's probably my favorite part of the book, of all of the Alice narrative. Um, and then I have some, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more detail there about the Cheshire Cat with the the artistry that uh, John Tenniel kind of brings in there. But yeah, that's probably my, my number one side character. Well, you know, in this wonderfully existential kind of way, it doesn't matter which way you go, right? They're mad both ways. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Derek, I can tell you really know this text. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a, a mystery that I have had teaching this book multiple times. One of my favorite characters is the, um, the, 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 the one who keeps calling Alice a serpent. Like, you're a serpent. And she's so insistent. No, I'm a little girl. And she, you know, she confesses to eating eggs, right? And you're, you're, you, know, you eat eggs, therefore you must be a serpent. But right before that, there's a puppy. And every animal talks. Every animal has human characteristics. And there's this giant puppy that never speaks. It's a puppy. So why the heck is there one normal animal that doesn't talk, that doesn't write with its finger, that doesn't go on the trial? Why is there a giant puppy there? Help me out. Teach me, Derek, what I'm supposed to do with that puppy. So, so there's, there's two ways, right? I, I got I to gotta throw it out there in two ways. We talked about innocence earlier. And what better way to show that level of innocence than with a puppy, right? Where it's innocent, it's cute, it's lovable. Um, and it can be trained relatively easy, right? It doesn't really take a whole lot of kind of goading. It just, you can train it to sit. You can train it to go to the restroom where it needs to go to the restroom. And Alice plays with the dog. 
And what's interesting about when she plays with the dog is, is the same thing. She's kind of treating it in this way of she has a sense of control over this dog. She takes the, the twig and she kind of plays fetch with the dog. And what's interesting is that control that she has in that moment over this seemingly like lower life form to her is actually more like on equal playing ground because she's one very small at the time. She's so small that it looks like a giant puppy to her. It's a giant dog. And this also comes right before that caterpillar scene. So there is this sense of she has control over something, but it's also foreshadowing this lack of control, this lack of continuity with her, her previous life that she had. So it's kind of a, a both and a catch all there for, for Lewis Carroll. At least that's my reading of it. I mean, I see it in that way. So for all future students of my children's literature class, when we discuss this text and I say that very thing, do recognize that Derek Fernando came up with that idea <laughs> and I simply stole that from him. And that's when I'm saying that. So if you listen to this in the future, students of Chris Evans children's literature do know that wasn't an original idea from me. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But no steel in here. This is all this is steel sharpening steel It's just two guys making sure that we talk about this the right way. Love it. Steel and steel, right? Both of those yep. together. So, a so Carol action. <laughs> yeah, oh, such a wordsmith as well, too. And that's I, th this text is so playful. I, I just and I love the way language works. I, like you, I'm sure we are word nerds that when I hear, oh, back to Tolkien, like the word int comes, you know, the word giant and int that goes back i love the way language works and this text is so masterful and so smart the way he plays with language um down the rabbit hole that is such a quintessential concept and it is such a brilliant literary metaphor it's such a brilliant life metaphor so let's start there down the rabbit hole derek take it away yeah all right well i mean it's something that kind of permeates all of not just literature, but kind of like every medium at this point. Funny enough, last night I decided I was going to watch the first episode of the new Marvel TV show, Loki. And I'm not going to give anything away. So no spoilers here, but watching that show again, this first episode came out two days ago, right? Watching that show, the beginning of it, Loki is apprehended. And what happens? He's put into an elevator and the elevator takes him down to go meet with a certain group to get something done, goes down again to meet with another group. And it's him falling down this rabbit hole into this new space, this new, I don't know, world that the Marvel universe hasn't really touched on yet. That's governed by, or is like ruled by time. And so that metaphor from 1865 to June 9th, 2021 is something that is constantly used as a way to discuss this kind of duality of the worlds that we occupy in some way or another. And when we think about what that means and falling down this rabbit hole, the fact that Lewis Carroll can affect us 150 years, 160 years later and get us to this place of using that metaphor as a way to describe these dualities that we live in on a constant basis. Mm -hmm. I think is amazing as an author. And when we think about that metaphor as a way to separate these worlds, think about all the other things that came with that. You know, you have wormholes now as a way to separate two spaces. You have 
um, thinking about how we've taught in a pandemic and the two worlds we've had to occupy that way and falling down that rabbit hole to figure out where we're going to fall next. Um, thankfully, not on a bunch of dry bushes and leaves and whatnot. <laughs> At least for me, anyway, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, but I think that having that as a metaphor, one, has a lot of staying power, obviously. But two, it really is this great, this, this literary artifice, this way of showing that there are these two worlds, but they're separated. They're separated in some way or another that is going to allow for Alice to occupy one world, even though the other one we know is just up, back up that tunnel. Um, so I think that that's really my favorite part about that metaphor is how often it's used to describe the fact that we as human beings are constantly living this dual life. So we'll have to have another episode now on, on Stephen Hawking's brief history of time and stacking turtles <laughs> of the universe. So that's episode number four. So right. we, we may have to create our own podcast outside of American Lit Podcast and, and Lit right. Matters Podcast. So I'm, 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 I'm all in. Uh, <laughs> American Lit Matters. There it is. It's already written. Go. Hey, we, you know, we're not busy enough as it is. Right? <laughs> we can right. we can use another podcast. Um I am such a fan of this novel and, and it's hard not also to love the illustrations because they, they are genius. I think that, you know, Sir John Tunnell is as it's as smart as the book itself. So I'm curious, do you have some favorite illustrations that you point out when you teach or that you look at longing that you love as well too, because they're brilliant. I, I know that, you know, Lewis Carroll wanted to illustrate this himself and, and, and it would be an entirely different work if he did. Have you seen the version side note here with Quentin Blake, who also illustrates for illustrated for um, uh, Roald Dahl? He does all the Roald Dahl novel illustrations. Have you seen the Alice version with Quentin Blake? No, it, it's worth a look because it changes. It's, it's almost like an entirely different experience. So do check that out. I definitely but, will. But back to Tanel as well, too. What are your favorite illustrations? Talk to you about one of the one or two of those. Um, so my favorite, my, my number one goes back to the Cheshire cat. And um, when you look at that moment, it's not just the Cheshire cat himself that's there that makes it so intriguing. It's everything else that's happening. If you look at the space itself in that image, one, you have the Cheshire cat above, Alice below. You don't see Alice's face. You only see the Cheshire cat's face. And as we know, that is imper impermanent. So in thinking about the fact that the Cheshire cat is there, that we don't really see Alice's face in that moment, I really, I always play this with my, my students. What if the Cheshire cat is Alice? And then we move into that conversation about the dream and how everyone is Alice and someone others are. But thinking about how everyone in them has this, this guide, this moral compass. I think that this, this image really is a way to, to highlight that, that for all intents and purposes, the Cheshire cat is that for Alice by way of both not showing her face and by him look, her looking up to him. Then also thinking about just the, the beautiful tree that it's in. And I'm a big, I started to get into gardening. That's my other side hustle. Cause again, you don't have a whole lot of time, right? So created a garden outside, but the, the one thing I really, really want is a new tree and not just any tree. I'd love a Bodhi tree because a Bodhi tree is one of those. It's, it's the, the Buddhist tree where Siddhartha himself is sitting under it and he achieves enlightenment. And 
but you look at the tree itself and it's, it's got multiple branches and it looks like it has multiple trunks when it's all just one trunk kind of segmented out. And this tree itself, although it doesn't have that trunk look to it, the fact that it has all these different branches at this moment where Alice is at a crossroads. I mean, that's really what it means, right? This, this journey that we're on to get to the center of something. But there are always these multiple kind of avenues you can take. And so I really love what, what Sir John Tenniel did with the, the image there in terms of Alice and the Cheshire Cat, as well as the tree branches kind of in this moment. It's like a great signpost for the text. And then any of the other images of animals with human-like qualities. So, for example, one of the, one of the ways that um, the dodo is drawn, you can see the dodo shaking Alice's hand with a human hand and not like a, a wing or anything. Um, the caterpillar is using the hookah with a human hand. There's almost this, this sense that as much as we are in this fantastical world, that Sir John Tenniel is also like inching us to the idea that this is also somewhat connected to our real world too that there's almost an artifice to it. Like they're wearing costumes to put this on for Alice. And I got definite uh, Wizard of Oz vibes too. Like this is always connected to some other person in Alice's life. What I love about that, that's one of my favorite images. It has two human hands and he has a little cane as well too. I love the baboon behind him. Just that look at the baboon is phenomenal. And, and, and I always point this out to my students, recognize he was writing this at exactly the same time Darwin, right? So you have all of those Darwin uh, you know, uh, exhibits that are in Oxford at that time. And then he almost recreates them as well in this book. It's so cool. Yes. Uh, yeah, you could, you could teach a whole master class on the illustrations uh, of you know, this particular novel. Um, and and I, I think going back to one of your first points that you made, Derek, the idea of how this is Alice is this, is this quintessential character I love the image of her cramped in the house as well, too. I mean, is that not the perfect image of every child, of every human in existence that we feel that way? Oh, yeah. Well, okay, so so now we have our, our tree podcast we have to have. We have our uh, <laughs> our art prod, uh, podcast as well, too. So that makes about five now. So yeah. it, it's going to be a long evening. Uh, I think our, our listeners will enjoy each of these uh, branches Absolutely. that we, we, we delve into. What about for the reader that struggles with sort of the nonsensical, you know, nature of this? It can be a bit daunting because it is told in such an unconventional way. What What advice do you have for readers who pick this up and think, well, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Yeah. Um, well, my first piece of advice, I guess would be to read it more than once. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. When you look at a, a text that is in some way or another confusing or complex, you have to think of it from the perspective of how many times do I need to read this? And, and this is something I go over with my students early on in class, whether it's the high school students or the college students. Active reading is a huge part of how we are able to interact with the text. And interaction with this text is absolutely the most important part of reading it. If you read this as just an enjoyment read, it's going to be really tough because there's so many moments where the wordplay or, or when Lewis Carroll messes with the actual typography on the page with the, the mouse's tail. I mean, there's all of these moments that can be really frustrating to a reader 
who may not necessarily be very strong with their reading or maybe is con like developing that reading skill. So the first thing I would say is that you have to plan to read it more than once. If you're going to read this book and it's not a, it's not long, right? it's novella length. So I think it's, it's all right to, to read more than once, but to, to plan to read it more than once, that would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be to really focus on the language as a duality. And I keep saying duality, <laughs> but uh, when we think about what Lewis Carroll is doing, I mean, I, I'm a dad, you're a dad, dad jokes are kind of in our DNA at this point. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> there's a yeah. lot of them in this story. <laughs> so um, that's the other thing to consider is that Lewis Carroll is going to use a lot of puns. He's going to use a lot of metaphor. He's going to use a ton of language tricks to make the book enjoyable, but they can be frustrating if you don't think of it as something that's open-ended. Uh, a lot of my students, uh, specifically at the high school, because we have these academic pathways, um, they're math and science oriented, and they'll come into it and they'll say, well, what does it mean? Yeah. Well, you can't go into this book asking that question, unfortunately. There isn't a X's and O's, this is what the book means, the end. Mm -hmm. This book means, and then an ellipsis after that, and that's it. That's really what this book is. So to look for a single idea, to look for something that is the answer to what this book is, that's the wrong way to go about it. So plan to read it more than once. Know that language is going to be played with from this duality perspective and don't look for a meaning. To, to quote Mark Twain, those looking for a, a meaning in this text will be shot on sight. <laughs> and ironically enough, he was a mathematician who still was able to sort of transcend that notion of you put me in this box, that's what you expect. I think I think um, I, the queen asked for his next book and he sent her a book of mathematics, you know, just <laughs> like as almost a joke as well, too. Um, I'm curious, as a dad, um, did you read this one to your kids? So I, I think back to, you know, you talked to, you know, so lovingly of your grandmother's well too, and all the stories she shared with them. And, you know, that we all have that journey, like books that really, you know, were, were, were transformative for us. And you, we, we've talked about Lord of the Rings and I could not wait to read the Hobbit to my kids. I could not wait to we watership down to my children, even when they weren't old enough to process what they were doing. I remember lying to my daughter reading um, Charlotte's web. We got to the end and she was so young and I just couldn't break her little heart at the end. So I changed the ending and I was creative enough to pull it off. And then she got to school and read it and said, dad, you lied to me. You know, she knew that I, I had robbed this part of her, but I waited for a very long time to read Alice. I didn't quite know how to approach it with him. I'm curious, Derek, did you read it with your children? Like, is this one of the ones that hit the rotation early in, in, in the Fernando household? It did. It did multiple times. In fact, it was one of those things that it was almost like a, a bi-monthly read. So uh, between we would do, uh, either smaller, like reading books, nighttime books, five minute stories, Disney stories, or we'd make up our own night stories. So, you know, it would be the, cause my twins are a boy and a girl fraternal twins. So it would be a princess story. Then it would be a prince story, or it would be an athletic story, but we would make up our own stories for, for story time to go to bed. Uh, but Alice was in heavy rotation and multiple versions. I, I didn't start with the, the actual, here is the Alice text. Um, just one of those kind of nighttime storybook versions, condensed versions, doesn't really play with the language. But recently, 
just started moving them in the direction of reading chapter books. And so, yeah, that's what we're, we're starting to look at now. But again, it is a daunting text. And to, to know that they're going to have to read it multiple times, um, you know, getting them started early, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I think the other hard part about reading this to my kids is, you know, I mean, it's such a formative book to me. And even when teaching it, it, there's this, this fear, you know, I love it so much <laughs> and I don't want someone else one to, yeah. you know, to, to say, no, it's not a very good book. Cause that's going to hurt. <laughs> but yeah. the other thing too, is I don't want to, to force that, this, this love that I have for this book on my kids or my students and them feeling like they're obligated to love it. I, I was fortunate enough to stumble upon it because I took a wisdom lit class in grad school. And this was the text that we were reading and it clicked. It was just in a moment in my life where I needed it. And I think that's why I fell in love with it was, it was kind of a, a home away from home that I needed. And it's my hope that my children will, will appreciate it and hearing it and knowing the story. I mean, you can ask today, I was just talking to my daughter about it and I said, tell me about Alice. And she just started running down Alice for me. And it's, it's awesome. It really feels great to, to have that connection with my kids. But at the same time, I don't want to be the one who's going to force that on them. I want them to kind of come to it on their own. And if they don't, if they find another text, that's, I fell in love with this book. All right. We did the right thing though. We read from the beginning. And I think that's what, what it really means to, to fall in love with reading is just getting that, that early foundation. in. And I think that's great advice, Derek, to again, I think it's really smartly said the idea that sometimes we come across books that at that moment, that's the book that we need, right? And it may not have resonated with us the first three or four times, but there may be that moment where it, it just absolutely clicks yeah. uh, for me. Grapes of wrath was that way. I, it took me six or seven reads before it, it, it almost brought me to tears that seventh time that now, now I get it at this moment where I am in my life. Uh, it hit me. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's Alice too. I mean, if you think about it, Alice is that way, the entire narrative, mm -hmm. she doesn't quite know what's happening. She's just trying to grasp it. And it isn't until the very end mm -hmm. of this journey that it clicks with her. Like, Oh, now I know where I am. Now I know who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that sense of, of knowing yourself, I don't know if it's ever been written, but again, her sister who almost appears to be an adult, right? And they were forever referenced their, their governess or their nurse reading to them. You know, if you told this story from their perspective as an adult, would they also have the answers or would they also be just as lost as Alice, perhaps? Uh, if we really want to go to that existential rabbit hole of, of, of curiouser and curiouser. Right. Derek, I'm curious, what is your favorite passage? And there's so many great parts. Do you mind sharing one of your favorite passages from Alice with us? Well, I've, I've referenced it multiple times. So, I mean, it may only make sense to read it. Um, <laughs> so it is the, the Cheshire cat talking about where they are. And um, so Alice is kind of asking for directions and, and like any child, right? They're looking for an answer from who they would appear, who would appear to be an adult or someone that knows what to do. And so um, she asks, and this is at the top here. So Cheshire Puss, she began rather timidly as she did not know at all whether it were, it would like the name. However, it only grinned a little wider. 
Hamid, please, so far, thought Alice, and she went on, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to go get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. Alice felt that this could not be denied, so she tried another question. What sort of people live about here? In that direction, the cat said, waving its right paw around, lives a, a hatter. And in that direction, waving the other paw, lives a March hare. Visit either you like, they're both mad. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. And for me, in this, in this text, I really see this journey through the eyes of, of a student. And that's why I love teaching this. It really is a, a student's journey. They get into this world, this higher education world, where people are speaking in ways that they don't fully understand. They don't understand the rules. Everything is kind of over their head. And at a time when they are still kind of growing and, and shrinking, whether that's in their confidence or actual in their, in their actual physical being. And it's at that moment where they just, they're at their wits end. I don't know what else to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Can you just please tell me where I need to go? And you're presented options. And those options are probably not the ones you want. You can go here, you can go there, but everyone's kind of crazy there too. So take your pick. I don't want to go among mad people, but that's just it. Once you figure out that we're all mad, things become that much easier. And so in that moment, the, the Cheshire cat as this guide and why I really feel like there's this, this deep connection between Alice and the cat, that this is Alice's moral compass. This is the true Alice saying, you just got to figure it out. Come on, you're almost there. Her subconscious almost saying, this is where we need to be. Just figure out who you are and where you go won't matter. And I feel like for every one of my students, that's really what I want them to know is that you want, you have all these plans and trust me, we all do at some point or another, we all got those plans. But if you just know who you are and know that you're giving everything you have, those plans will matter. You're going to be happy where you are because you'll know who you are. Wow. You, you've just become the Cheshire cat. You've become the, the hookah smoking caterpillar. Uh, <laughs> You've become the dad sort of giving your kids advice of how they approach life as well, too, as well as the teacher advising your students on the pathways they 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 have in front of them that they have to discover. Thank you. Well, Derek, That's my hope. Yeah, it's it's a hope of every teacher and every parent and every human, I, I would think. You, you've sort of answered it, but I'll, I'll toss the question out one more time as well, too. Why does this book matter? Why does this, why should we all be reading Alice today in 2021? It goes back to what I said earlier about when I first found the book. I think it, it meets what everyone needs when they need it. When you're a child and you're trying to figure out the world around you, it teaches you that asking questions isn't bad. It isn't wrong. In fact, it's the best thing for you. Being curious is good. Wondering is, is good. Wandering is good. Mm -hmm. 
then when you're a little older, when you're in your adolescent age and you're trying to figure out how to navigate the world while everything inside of you is changing and you don't quite know who you are at that point, you're growing and, and shrinking at different times and you're trying to figure out you know, what makes you you and why people want to be with you and how do you get more people to want to be with you and make more friends. In that moment, you can find Alice in the middle of the text. Then when you're an adult and when you're starting to really hit your stride and figure out where you are and where you're supposed to be, and you see others in those same spaces and their same kind of journeys, you get to talk with them. Sometimes you agree, like with the Duchess, and other times you disagree, like with the Queen. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of just figuring out who you are in any situation. And as long as you're true to yourself in that situation, everything else is just a pack of cards. You don't really have to worry about anything else. So I think that it's just, it's one of those books that no matter when you pick it up in your life, it can anchor you to what you're supposed to do and who you're supposed to be. Well, I think you connected us back to one of my favorite lines from another book we discussed, Tolkien, right? All who wander are not lost, right? It's this, 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 this yes. is a genius to that, right? Yeah, yes. Well, well, Derek, we have come to the end of our mad literary tea party here. Uh, and I want to thank you so very much for sharing your expertise on this novel. Um, you know, and I hope everyone goes and checks out your podcast, American lit, right? Uh, it's available for download at Apple music, at Spotify, at other places you can find podcasts. And while you are uh, downloading Derek's podcast, please feel free to subscribe to, to my show lit matters. If you haven't done so leave us both a review because yes. those always help us uh, be sure and, and check out any of our past episodes as well, too, for each of our podcasts. I have a podcast on uh, Parable of the Sower, on Hamlet, on Moby Dick. I have one coming up for the Iliad that I'm really excited about as well, too. And, yes. and I'll end it with this. Please remember, like Alice, find a pleasure in all the simple joys, remembering your own child life and the happy summer days. So, so Derek, thank you so very much for joining it's us. It's my today. pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. No, always. Well, we have four more podcasts to, to tape. Yes. So we'll continue this, uh, this mad journey. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans, and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup. Find them at Apple Music and Spotify. Music.